welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So we have another account, kind of similar to um, an account that we had touched on a few weeks past in, in Acts 4, an account of threat, persecution. Now this account is ramping up a little bit from what we saw before, and this is not the last time we're going to see this. And so as, as I was looking over this passage, my mind went and I was, I was thinking of like, how, how am I going to preach on this? Because there's a lot of similarities to the previous account. And so for this Sunday, I, I, as I was thinking about it, my mind, interestingly, went to the concept of virtues. Hopefully it makes sense why at the end of the sermon, but I wanted to take this Sunday to talk about virtues. One virtue in particular. But before we kind of get into that, I, I, my mind went to virtues because back uh, many, many years ago, whenever I worked at Grove City College, I, I was doing leadership formation and, and I, I was doing it through the lens of the ancient virtue tradition and the idea of cultivating virtue. I found that important because in the contemporary world, we've moved away from the idea of virtues and we've moved to other forms of morality and ethics that are primarily focused on determining what the right action is, which is good. But virtues went deeper than actions. Virtues had to do with character, what actually drives the actions of a person. Moral actions come about by virtues. But the problem with more contemporary approaches to thinking about things is that moral action, virtues will always produce, produce right actions, but right actions do not always reflect virtues. Sometimes an action that seems virtuous could actually be a product of a vice. To use an example, um, let's say the, the virtue of patience. And you might look at somebody and be like, wow, like, they cultivated so much patience in their life. And little do you know that it's not that they've cultivated the virtue of patience. They're just really lazy and apathetic. So they're not quick to act. Same action, but derived from very different sources. But I was really drawn to the virtue tradition because I saw in the New Testament, in the scriptures, the ancient world was, that they lived in, that was a virtue-based world. And we see that that was the emphasis within the scriptures, especially within the New Testament. The focus was, was not on what marks you as a Christian is that you do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But what does it say? It says that you will know them by the fruit and the fruits of the Spirit. None of those things are actions. They're actually virtues. Dispositions that then express themselves in action. 
our Christian formation is that we be formed into the likeness of Christ. There is a movement I remember years back, right after I became a Christian, and they had bracelets and stuff. They're like WWJD, like what would Jesus do? And, and, and like not to mock it, but that's actually the wrong Christ question. It's more like, what, what's the type of person Jesus would be? Because much of the things that Jesus did, we shouldn't do. Like, what would Jesus do? Sacrifice himself as the savior of the world. If you try to do that, you're a heretic and you're condemned. Don't do what Jesus did. But no, when it talks about being formed in the likeness of Christ, it means taking on his character. The virtues that marked him. And whenever I was, was teaching leadership in, in at Grove City and, and, and focusing on the idea of, of being a transformational per, uh, figure within the world in which you live. One of the virtues that always stuck out to me that I think is often misunderstood, something we, we, we gravitate towards, but, but I think miss and is absolutely essential. It's the virtue of courage. In Christian tradition, courage was one of the four cardinal virtues. Cardinal is not in reference to the bird or the special people around the Pope, but cardinal, which comes from the idea of hinge. One of the four virtues that all the other virtues seem to hinge off of. Prudence, justice, temperance, and courage. But see, courage today is often understood as a lack of fear. One who is courageous is somebody who's fearless. And in the ancient world, just like today, we often, they, they would learn what a virtue was by looking at champions or heroes. And you would have your myths of your great champions. And so for them, courage was seen by these great champions, the ones who were victorious at war, the ones who went into battle for the name of country or for family or whatever it was. And, and that's how they learned virtue. And we kind the virtue of courage, and we kind of do the same. We have our superhero movies. Where once one realizes that that radioactive spider is not going to kill you slowly but instead give you great powers now all of a sudden you have courage to go against the bad guy and do the right thing or in our our cultural myths of great men from the past great women from the past they were confident they were ambitious they were fearless and so they did great things because they were courageous what i find is interesting is from the church tradition, especially from Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s. He focused a lot on courage, but sought to flip the script on how it was understood by drawing the idea of courage back to the scriptures. And he defined it as this. He said it was a willingness to sacrifice lesser goods for the sake of greater good. So courage was, for instance, the willingness to sacrifice the good of freedom for a prison cell 
for the sake of what you saw as a greater good of standing up for justice. That would be courage. And for Aquinas, he argued that fear is not the antithesis to courage, but necessary for it. Because without fear, you aren't thinking that you're going to sacrifice anything. And if you're not thinking you're going to sacrifice anything, you're not actually being courageous. Aquinas said that actually one who doesn't have fear is not one who is courageous. It is one who is foolish and arrogant. And so for Aquinas, he said that the ultimate expression of courage was martyrdom. Because one who is courageous in war might be courageous, but nonetheless, you still run into battle with the hope that you're going to win. But the martyr runs to the burning stake knowing he is going to lose. But nonetheless, does so sacrificing one of the greatest goods that we have, which is our life, for the sake of one of the only goods that is greater than that, which is God's glory and the gospel. I share this because I think that Aquinas is right. Not because he's called St. Thomas Aquinas or a doctor of the church or anything else, but because he's capturing something that is quite biblical. A vision of courage is depicted in Scripture that redefines the heroes of the Greeks, the Romans, the medieval Europe, or American folklore. And so as we look at this passage today, I, I just want to look at this event as an opportunity to look the virtue of courage as embodied by the, by the apostles in this account. And so I want to focus on the nature of their courage, the source of their courage, and then finish with how we might cultivate courage and live a courageous life today. So first, the nature of their courage. Verse 27, it says, And when they had brought, <clears throat> brought them, they had set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them. Real quick, before this passage that we read, I I had to cut it because this is a very long account. And I encourage you to go back. But before this portion of the account, we see that the apostles were in the temple and they were healing and they were preaching the gospel. And it says that they were arrested and thrown into prison. But then the angel of the Lord miraculously released them from prison. The first hint of this radical idea of courage is the fact that immediately after leaving the prison, they went to the same spot where they were arrested. I'm pretty sure that if I got released from prison, there's a good chance that I am running the opposite direction as fast as I can. And yet they went back to the same spot, continued preaching the gospel, and then were brought before the religious rulers and leaders of the day. And in verse 28, they said, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
If we remember back a few weeks ago, they had arrested Peter and John, and when they arrested Peter and John, they charged them and threatened them to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. They completely disobeyed that charge. And as we had talked about a few Sundays ago, in response to that, they went back with the others and prayed a dangerous prayer. They didn't pray for protection. They didn't pray for escape. They prayed for more boldness. And it seems that God answered their prayer. Because they went back and they kept preaching Jesus. And then the key of understanding the nature of their courage, we see in, in verses 29 through 32, that Peter, speaking for the rest, responded, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. If you notice from the response, the response was a simple proclamation of the very thing that they were there for proclaiming. There wasn't any like rhetorical wit from Peter at all. No trying to show superiority, no arrogance, no even sense of you can't touch us, you can't harm us, nothing of that. Most likely because they had already been threatened, they would assume that this might be the end. They could probably see in the eyes of those who had arrested them what what Luke mentions, that they wanted to kill them. And they probably sensed that. There's no proclamation of their superiority or anything else like that. It'd actually be foolish because these were the same dudes that not long before had Jesus killed. So what would make them think that the same was not going to occur to them? But instead, they went back to preaching what they knew to preach. The gospel. And if you notice, they didn't temper it. They didn't even try to make it a little bit more appealing and appeasing to the rulers. If somebody wants to kill you because you've been preaching a gospel that they see as threatening to them, it's probably not a good idea um, if you want to make it out alive to say, this is the message we're preaching. We're preaching Jesus, who was the Messiah, the Son of God, who you killed. Like, not a good tactic. And yet... They preached this gospel. They preached it simply. They preached it courageously. So you see within the idea of courage is not that these were great bold men who knew they were superior. They were powerless men. Men who had no control over their fate and were submitted to the whims of the ruling authorities. 
but they were consumed with this idea of the gospel. So much so that the ones who were seeking to kill them and imprison them because of the preaching of the gospel, they preached that gospel to them, offering grace and forgiveness to the very ones who were threatening them and trying to silence them. And so not only were they courageous, but there was another virtue that was tied to their courage. It's the virtue of humility. If you look at the virtue tradition, they were wise to notice that, that the virtues always had to be coupled together. And interestingly, humility is always, in the Christian tradition, tied to the idea of courage. Humility is the virtue of the right assessment of self. It's not self-deprecation. Like, to be humble isn't to say, I suck. Unless you really do. Then I guess humility would be the right assessment of yourself. <laughs> but, like, but no, it's, it's not to think ultra low of yourself, but it's also not to think ultra high of yourself. Aquinas said that humility is the right assessment of yourself in light of God. So courage without humility ceases to be courage because it's usually courageous actions motivated by arrogance and boldness. A sense of superiority, power. But if we go to the end, we see in 40 and 41, it says, And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. But the apostles, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for their name. What's translated here that they beat them is the Greek word for flogging. Brutal whipping. The same thing that Jesus endured. And it says that they rejoiced in their dishonor. Very different than the images and movies and stories of the great courageous heroes that fought for honor, that went into the battlefield, who went above all odds, but that they might gain honor for their people and their name. The courage of these men and the humility of rightly assessing themselves before God led them to rejoice in dishonor because those whippings and those beatings and the dishonor and the shame that they received was the same as the one whom their eyes were fixed upon. It was Jesus. As I said, as we see, these were not fearless men. They were not arrogant men. They were powerless men. And I say powerless because they could have easily been killed at that moment and they would have been killed if it had not been for the wise counsel of Gamaliel. Or they would have remained in prison if it had not been for the work of God through the angel of the Lord. See, the, the nature of true courage is not a personality. It's not self-confidence. It's not a disposition to face risks. 
that you're a thrill seeker, not afraid of death. It's not tied to strength or ability, but it's found in a radical focus and reliance on the gospel. That that gospel of Christ has become of such great good that there is no other good that could surpass it. It is of such great value and worth that no matter how good all of the other goods are, even the greatest of cowards would quickly relinquish those goods for the sake of the great good of the gospel. The thing of their primary focus of hope and their primary place of allegiance. And that leads into then the source of their courage. Courage was not something within themselves. Actually, we see throughout the stories that through the Gospels, most of them were cowards. Maybe slightly courageous, but it was because they were clamoring for places of honor and distinction, fighting over who gets the right hand of Jesus when he establishes his kingdom. But now we see that the source of their courage was found in their champion who embodied true humility and courage. As I said, in the Greek world, in the Roman world, and even today, young men and women learn the virtue of courage by pointing to what they called their champions. Great victors and warriors exemplifying courage. Yet they looked to Jesus. Find it interesting, in verse 31, in Peter's proclamation, he, he says, I'll read it again, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This word translated leader is a um, uncommon Greek term, archigos that is in common in the New Testament. It can mean uh, author, it can mean founder, it can mean leader, but in the ancient Greek world, an archigos was a champion. The one who they would point to as the champion of their people, as the one who exemplifies virtue. One of the only other places where this term archigos is used is found in Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews writes, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the archigos, the champion and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The source of their courage was that they had a new champion. Their eyes were fixed upon him who was their champion and their perfecter of their faith. And as their eyes were fixed upon him, he redefined for them what courage actually look like. 
The one who had all power relinquished his power. Willingly gave up his life, willingly endured shame. All for the joy that was set before him. That joy was not the cross. Jesus was not a masochist. The joy that was set before him was the glory of his Father, and it was you and I, and the millions of others around the world throughout history. That our redemption in the kingdom of God was like that parable that he did share. It was a parable not about us, but about him. About the one who found the pearl of great price and gave everything for it. He exemplified courage and redefined courage. And by having their eyes fixed upon him, they found themselves with what seems to be supernatural courage. And we even see with Jesus, his courage was not a lack of fear. Because remember, if you've read the story, when he was in the garden, he was crying. He was sweating blood. He was so afraid. And yet, he is our champion because He endured the shame and endured the cross because of the joy of a greater good that he saw. See, these men were courageous because they recognized their dependence upon the gospel and their focus was on Christ as their champion, as their example of courage. And in their focus and their communion with Christ, their love for Christ and His gospel, their love for the the kingdom that He had purchased had become such a great good that they didn't think twice about sacrificing everything for the sake of that gospel being proclaimed. gospel that they proclaimed to others but was a reminder to them of their utter dependence and reliance upon grace because apart from it they're not great men they have nothing to offer they're powerless peasant cowards but they're powerless peasant cowards that also have courage because they have the gospel at the center of everything. So we have the nature of courage, the source of courage. And then just a few comments about courage for us today. Usually whenever I read these stories, and, and I, like, I think about myself, but I hear it in conversations, it's like that question, like, what would I do in that situation? I, I, I would love to think that if I was imprisoned and then flogged 
and then threatened with my life for preaching the gospel, I would like to think that I would go back out and keep preaching. I don't, I don't know. And honestly, by the grace of God, I hope I never find out. But one thing that's interesting to me about the virtue tradition is it's not about asking these random questions of, well, if you're in this situation, what do you do? You know, and, and a lot of ethics is that. Like, so is it okay to lie if you're, like, I mean, and, and it's all of these grand scenarios. But because virtue is not a particular action, but a disposition that leads to action. It's something that is cultivated by the little things in the day-to-day. Let's say, like, that, that, you know, asking the question, if you hear a child crying in a burning building, would you run in? Most likely not if you spend your whole life worrying about, uh, like, uh, like, scenarios that may not happen. But if in little ways you're continually putting aside your own comfort and security for the sake of defending the innocent, most likely if that would happen, you wouldn't even think twice about it. You would just do it. We may not ever face threats like we read about today. Sadly, many of our brothers and sisters do. I got to know some of them as Anglican priests from Nigeria that I went to seminary with. But we most likely will not face that. But nevertheless, whether it is something great or just small, minuscule things, the source of courage is the same. Same for the great, same for the small small it's learning to put the gospel in Christ so much on the forefront that we realize how great of value and worth it actually is and looking to Christ as our champion we don't face those great threats most of us But honestly, we do in small ways. And sometimes it's harder to be courageous when the threat is small than whenever it's great. I always use the example, like it's it's easier for me to love my enemy when somebody is blatantly attacking me because then I'm like, I need to love my enemy. Um, It's really hard for me to love my enemy whenever my enemy doesn't use a turn signal and cuts me off. Because that jerk needs to go down. (laughs) And as I should be preparing my sermon in my mind, I'm running through scenarios where I pull over and scare the crap out of them. But so, but it's actually sometimes the the little things that are harder. Maybe not the shame and dishonor of whipping, but that social media post. being silenced by a certain group of people, talked down to by those who think that they're elites. 
The response of courage is not to puff out our chests and to feel superior or greater. Not to defend ourselves by tearing them down. Not by seeking revenge. But having our focus so engulfed by Christ and his gospel. Realizing that our continual need of grace is the same need for those who might be threatening us. That we might rejoice in our dishonor because for the joy set before us, which is faithfulness to the gospel, we will endure shame, ridicule, threat, or discomfort because the gospel is that beautiful. It's worth that much. The courage to lay aside the simple privileges, comforts, liberties and freedoms that are rightfully ours. Because even though those things are good, they're not nearly as good as the gospel of Christ. And his kingdom, that he might be known. And a willingness to not like the apostles, compromise that message. So that maybe we can gain notoriety and honor while also still kind of preaching the gospel. But no, preaching the whole gospel, which is hope for all. So how, how do we get there? I think it's actually simple. We get there in the small ways just the same as the apostles did in the great ways, which is continually being reminded of the gospel. Continually being wooed and overwhelmed by God's love and grace towards us. Continually having our eyes fixed upon the champion and perfecter of our faith. We can't make ourselves courageous, but we can focus ourselves on the gospel and the true model of courage that Christ embodied to save all of us. And here's the good news. Even in our cowardice, even in our lack of true courage, Jesus is our champion. Not to look to our lack of courage but to fix our eyes upon him. And it says that he's not only the author or champion, he's also the perfecter of our faith. Reminding us that it is all grace. He is the one who through the fullest embodiment of courage endured the cross because of the joy of you and I being brought back to him is also the one who is carrying us and is making us like him and to be like Christ is to be truly courageous so let us fix our eyes upon Christ and his gospel and let him do the work that only he can do that we might go out into the world as truly courageous Christians in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue.